Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hi guys, what's up? This is episode 14 of The Savior Said. Welcome back. We are looking at April 1 through 14. This is Matthew 16 through 17, Mark 9, Luke 9, and it is Thou Art the Christ. And this is all about the Mount of Transfiguration this week and all kinds of really awesome stuff. So I'm glad that you are here to join me today. All right, we're going to go ahead and start off with our episode summary. There's lots of synoptic stuff again this week in this particular um, scripture reading episode that we've got here. So when that happens, I'm just going to skip it or tell you like synoptic to Matthew 16 or whatever it is. Okay. All right. So we will start out with Matthew 16. The Pharisees and Sadducees ask for a sign. Not good, guys. We don't want to ask for a sign. Bad idea. Jesus tells his disciples, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, that's verse six. And the disciples are all like, "Uh uh-oh, he's mad because we don't have any bread. Like the leaven, they think that he's mad because they don't have bread. And Jesus kind of like face palms and says, no guys, not at all. Remember the 5,000 that we just fed? Do you really think that I'm mad that we don't have bread? Like I can make bread out of anything. Like, come on guys. And they eventually figure it out that no, he doesn't want bread. He wants them to stay away from the Pharisees and Sadducees. All right, 13. They go to Caesarea Philippi. I think that's how you say it. And Jesus asks his disciples, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? They give him some answers. And he asks, but whom do you say that I am? And Simon in 16 says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, which is amazing. I love that. Good job, Simon. Jesus calls him blessed. And then in 18, he gets a little punny with his puns because he says, and I say unto thee that thou art Peter, you know, which we know the word Petros is rock and he'll build his church upon his rock. He says, upon this rock, I will build my church. That's the pun. And then the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter, and whatsoever Peter will bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and vice versa. 21. Jesus starts prepping his disciples for his death, and he's telling them that he needs to go to Jerusalem, and there he will be killed, and he will rise again in three days. And Peter's all like, no, 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 no. And in 23, Jesus turns around and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things of God, but that that be of men. Of course, he's talking about what Peter just said, not necessarily Peter himself, because he just told him that he was like amazing and going to be the rock of the church. Let's go on. We've got some really good quotes in 24 and beyond here in Matthew 16. The first one says, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a pretty famous one. Another one is, who shall ever save his life shall lose it, and who will lose his life for my sake shall find it. 26, for what is a man profiteth if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? So, and then we have the very prophetic 28, verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew 17, Mount of Transfiguration time. Okay, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up into the mountains. He gets really bright, and then Moses and Elias appeared talking to them. They hear the voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They get really afraid. They fall on their faces, and Jesus lifts them up, and they see that everything is normal again. Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. All right. They ask him why Elias must come back. Jesus says Elias must come back to restore all things. Okay. 12. Jesus warns them again about what is coming. He's telling them again about his death. But I say unto you that Elias has come already, and they knew him not. But I have done unto them whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. And it says they understood that he was talking about John the Baptist, but they didn't really understand that he was talking about himself. They come down to the multitude off of the mountain. They find the other disciples trying to heal someone with an unclean spirit. The disciples couldn't cast out the unclean spirit. Jesus rebukes the devil. 
cast it out, tells the disciples that it would only come out with fasting and prayer. Jesus warns them again of what is coming in 22. And while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, The Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, 23, and they shall kill him. And on the third day he shall be raised again. And they were exceedingly sorry. Yeah, I'd be sorry too. All right. Then we get to the question of tribute. Jesus tells Peter to go and get a fish. There will be a coin in his mouth. That's how they pay taxes. All right. Mark 9. We're going in. Super synoptic to Matthew 17. Like, really, really identical. Until we get to verse 33. They're in a house. It says the house. So maybe it was like an important house. I don't know. In Capernaum. And he says, what were you guys talking about along the way? This is kind of like a mom move, right? Like, I heard you guys discussing this. What were you discussing? And they say, 34, they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. 35, he sat down and called the 12. And he said unto them, if any man desired to be first, the same shall be last, the servant of all. All right. He gives the example of a child that they should be like a child. The disciples tell him, Master, there is one who is casting out devils in thy name. And he's like, Good, let them, for he who is not against us is with us. If you're doing good stuff in Christ's name, keep doing it. We get a couple of good sayings here at the end of Mark 9. Things like, If thy hand offend thee, cut it off, for it is better thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands and go into hell. And then in 50, we are told to be salty. 50, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltness, Wherewith will you season? Have salt in yourself and have peace one with another. So y'all stay salty. All right, Luke 9. This is like a synoptic smoothie, okay? We got bits and pieces coming in from like different chapters and different books and all just kind of like mixed in together, okay? But the highlights include the 12 are gathered and sent out like in Matthew 10. Jesus feeds the 5,000 like in Matthew 14. The foretelling of his death and resurrection, like in Matthew 16. Peter testifies of Christ, like in Matthew 16. We have the Mount of Transfiguration. We have the guy casting out devils in Christ's name, and Christ is like, yay, that's good, that's okay. Then we have the guy who wants to follow him, and Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, just like Matthew 8. So, we got a lot of stuff going on this week. Obviously, the big center showpiece is going to be the Mount of Transfiguration. So I'm really excited about that because we can talk about the keys of the priesthood and all kinds of really cool stuff that goes along with that. So y'all, get ready. Put your seatbelts on. It's going to be an awesome episode. All right, let's jump right in. Matthew 16. We start off and the Pharisees and Sadducees are asking for a sign. And this kind of goes into how do we get our testimonies of Christ? How do we get our testimonies of truth? How do we get our testimonies of any doctrine out there? In this seminary manual, I'm going to be referring a lot to the, the New Testament seminary manual. They always have like great stuff. And I love it that they break it down like chapter by chapter. So I'm going to be referring a lot back to that. So just know that you might want to pull that up as you're studying this week because it's really good. But they start out, they say, how would you best want to gain a testimony of Christ? Would you want to receive it through the appearance of an angel? Would you want to receive it through believing the words of a friend or family member? Through witnessing a miracle? Or through the Holy Ghost? And so for me personally... I would like to receive it through the Holy Ghost because what happens is the Holy Ghost comes and it teaches you in small moments and it teaches you repeatedly over and over and over again, which is what we as human beings need. We are not consistent, right, at all. And so just that one time of seeing an angel or the one time of witnessing a miracle, that's not going to do it for you for the rest of your life. Again, miracles do not convert truth and doctrine does. And so I would much rather have the truth which is confirmed to me by the witness of the Holy Ghost than a big shiny miracle. Um, Another thing that we need to look at is believing the words of a friend or family member. You need to have your own testimony. You need to rely on your own testimony because then when times and trials come or when that friend or family member falters and falls away or when they're not there any longer, you don't have them really to rely on. So you've got to find your own little testimony, your own little light um, of Christ. Definitely, I think through the Holy Ghost would be the best way to receive that testimony. Now, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the way that they were living, they did not have the Holy Ghost with them. So I think that they 
probably did not receive that testimony of Christ. And they're asking Jesus for a sign. And then Christ says, you know, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that seeketh after a sign. Because if you're seeking after a sign, you don't really want to believe. You're not seeking the doctrine. You're not seeking the truth. You're just seeking like fireworks. You want spiritual fireworks. And once the fireworks go off and they go away, you know, you don't really see them anymore. You may see the smoke from the fireworks, but that's it. You don't really have that experience. And you may have noticed this in your own life. Like God may have come down and done something like really amazing in your life or you had a healing or something just miraculous occurred in your own life. And you find like, you know, two weeks later, you're struggling with something else. I mean, and so again, Pharisees, you don't, you don't need a sign guys. Jesus does says he's going to give him the sign of the prophet Jonas, you know, talking about his death and resurrection, of course. All right. So after that, they take off and they take off on their little boat and they go to the coast of Caesarea Philippi. So we're going to kind of sort of a little bit Sister Frizzle this up. So Sister Frizzle and her magical scripture bus, um, we're going to head off to Caesarea Philippi. And there is actually this really awesome, it's a 360 virtual tour of Caesarea Philippi um, that you can actually watch for Come Follow Me With Your Families this week. I'll post it um, on my Facebook and on my blog. It's just like a little four minute long thing of this. It's I guess it's a pastor. He was there in 2017 and um, he's kind of talking about the area and you can actually pick up on the YouTube video with your mouse and kind of like scroll around and you can look up in the sky and you can look behind him and you can look all over. And so it's a really cool experience. So I definitely recommend that you check it out. But this place was very interesting. It had a long history within Greek mythology and religion with this particular area in Caesar Philippi. It's also very different from the places like the Jordan River and other places that we've talked about because there's lots of green. The little river is kind of flowing through it. It's the Mount Hermon River and there's lots of green, lots of greenery. Of course, you've got, you know, some of the dry desert stuff, but I mean, there's plants and there's, you know, green water and there's trees and all kinds of stuff. So it's a really pretty place, but because of all the rocks and the trees and stuff, like that, I could see why it would be a really easy place to have like a quiet private meeting among the disciples and apostles with Christ. And so, and to have this big revealing of the truth that Jesus is the son of God, um, this would be a really great place for that. So go check out that virtual tour because it's really, really pretty. So here we have in 13, Matthew 16, 13, um, Christ is kind of modeling for the disciples how you build a testimony. And again, we want it to be from the Holy Spirit, right? And so he starts out in 13, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? And so he's kind of encouraging them like, okay, so let's start exploring truth. And they said, well, some say thou art John the Baptist. Some say you're Elias. Some say Jeremiah. And some say you're a prophet. And so he's like, okay, so that's what the world is saying. You know, we've, we've researched it. We've looked around. Now, what do you say? And that's when Simon Peter answers and says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so he had the Holy Ghost with him when he was able to say that. And Jesus says to him in 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, so that's Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it to thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So he says, blessed are you because you're not listening to all these people around you who are saying that I'm, you know, Elias or John the Baptist or whatever. Your Father in heaven has revealed it to you. And that's how we gain a testimony. We have a question and we talk to our Father in heaven and eventually truth is revealed to us through the Holy Ghost. Um, Joseph Fielding Smith has a really good quote about this. He says, The Spirit of God, speaking to the Spirit of man, has power to impart truth with greater effect and understanding than the truth can be imparted by personal contact, even with heavenly beings. Through the Holy Ghost, the truth is woven into the very fiber and sinews of the body, so it cannot be forgotten. So that is a prophet of the church who probably has had contact with heavenly beings, and he is saying that the Holy Ghost has a more powerful effect on the testimony of man than seeing a heavenly messenger or having some sort of miraculous supernatural spiritual experience. And so I think that is important to know. Okay, and so Jesus is pretty happy with Peter, Simon Peter at this point. And um, in 18, we have the famous pun, right? And he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay, so the wordplay that we have here from the seminary manual, it says, As the Savior taught Peter about revelation, he used wordplay on Peter's name declaring to Simon Peter, thou art Peter. The Greek word that's actually used here is Petros, and that's P-E-T-R-O-S. And upon this rock, well now for rock, the Greek word that they use is Petra, 
So these are two different Greek words for rock. Petros means an isolated small rock or stone. So it's like a rock that you would pick up in your hand. Like that's Petros. That's what they the word that they use for Peter's name. But then in Greek, the word Petra can also mean a stone, like a rock like that. But in addition, it can refer to stony soil, it can refer to bedrock, or even a large mass of rock. And so from these words, we learn that it was not upon Peter as a man that the church would be built, but it would be upon the bedrock of the revelation, the way that Peter received the knowledge that Jesus was the Son of God. And I think that's important that we know that it wasn't upon Peter a man that the church was built. It was upon the revelation, although Peter would be incredibly important to the building of the church, especially after Christ leaves. But I think it's important to know that because Peter, bless his heart, I mean, even when Christ first meets him, he says, when Jesus beheld him, he said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, and thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. And so if you think about a stone, a stone is a lot of things. Um, a stone, it can be firm and it can be an immovable, but you put a stone in water and it sinks. And we saw poor Peter walking on the water. He definitely sank like a stone. But a stone can also be firm and immovable in some bad ways too. And, and so we see a lot of times with Peter that he's not perfect. And I think we see him a lot of times as a foil to Christ, Peter showing the humanity that we have when we come towards Christ. You know, we get really overexcited about some things and we think we're doing the right thing and then Christ kind of has to rebuke us and we're going to see that in a minute. From the very beginning, the moment that Christ first saw Simon, he called him Cephas. You know, he knew his personality. And I love that because it shows that even among the 12 apostles, Christ knew who Peter was and knew Peter's personality so personally. And among all the people in the world, Christ knows each one of us and he knows our personality and he knows our strengths and he knows our weaknesses so personally. And I think that is such a beautiful testimony of that. And then the other thing I really like about the scripture, and I had never thought of it this before until I started studying it this week. And I was listening to a podcast called 30 Minutes in the New Testament. And um, I don't know that I necessarily recommend this episode because I think that there are some things that they get about like the keys of heaven and stuff wrong. So I don't necessarily go out and um, listen to it. But it did have an interesting part that kind of made me think of this scripture a little bit differently because there's that phrase at the end where it says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I, when I had read the scripture in my mind, for some reason, I had always imagined, you know, hell coming down upon this rock and the rock being able to withstand hell and, and things like that. But um, in this podcast, they were talking and they said, you know, you think of gates and gates are kind of stable things like they're immovable. They don't really move. Like, they don't move into things. Like, why would the gates of hell, like, roll over this rock? Like, that just doesn't make sense. The imagery there just doesn't work, right? But think of the church as a rock that's rolling, right? Okay? And so it's rolling right up to the gates of hell, and Christ bursts right through them. He takes out sin, he takes out death with his atonement, and he bursts those gates of hell. So when we are looking at this imagery here where we have the rock and we have the gates of hell, it's the church slamming into the gates of hell and the gates of hell do not prevail against it. They fly wide open and Christ rolls on through and he defeats hell. And so I was like, oh, that is amazing imagery. I love that. So I wanted to share that with you guys. All right, going on into 19, and it says, And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so what are the keys of the kingdom? Okay, it's the directing power, the right, the authority necessary to preside over the kingdom of God on earth or the church of Jesus Christ. So obviously it's the priesthood, right? But then he also adds, so I give you the keys of the kingdom, Okay, that's the authority to preside over the church, which is what Peter and the apostles will need. But he also says, Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the sealing power he's promising as well, which we're going to see in the Mount of Transfiguration, how that kind of comes to pass. So he's promising priesthood power and the sealing power. Okay, And President Gordon B. Hinckley explained, The first presidency in the Council of the Twelve Apostles are called and ordained to hold the keys of the priesthood. They have the authority and responsibility to govern the church, to administer its ordinances, and to expound its doctrine, and to establish and maintain its practices. Okay, and that's from his talk, God is at the Helm. So Christ's church is a church of order. It is a church of 
hierarchy. It is a church of, you know, we know where things stand, and it's also a church of doing things the right way with authority. And so that's why it was so important that Christ established this. Okay, so this has been like an amazing spiritual experience. Peter is on a spiritual high. He knows who Christ is. He knows he's the Son of God. He knows he's, he's the Messiah. And he is just like feeling good, right? And then 21. <laughs> From the time forth that Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. So Christ is telling his disciples like, hey guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Um, I'm going to be killed, but don't worry, I'm going to rise again on the third day. And so Peter on his spiritual high is kind of like, no. And it says he, Peter began to rebuke Christ. Okay, you don't rebuke Christ. <laughs> That's a bad choice. <laughs> and he says, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. We read um, in the New Testament manual, By focusing only on the Savior's coming death, Peter failed to understand Christ's true mission, the redemption of all mankind. And so me coming back in here a little bit, I think, you know, the Jews were expecting so much for their Messiah to be kind of a political figure, to come in and save them from the Roman occupation. And so Peter, I think, the minute that he figures out who Christ really is and that he really is the Messiah, Peter is like ready to pack his bags and go charging against the Romans. Like he is ready to go out there and just take off and yeah, let's get this Messiah thing going. And then Jesus is like, yeah, no, actually I'm going to die. And he's like, no, no, we are not doing this. We are going to go fight the Romans. Like, why are you talking about this dying thing? And so I think it's important to note that in the next verse 23, when Christ turns and says to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense to me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those of men. That's what he's talking about, is that he wanted to go off and take care of the political issues with the Romans and things like that. Christ was really trying to get Peter to focus more on his true mission. I think it's also important to know, when Savior rebuked Peter and referred to him as Satan, he was not implying that Peter was Lucifer. Okay, it was what Peter was saying, and the Hebrew word Satan means adversary or tempter. So Christ is recognizing in that moment that Peter had put himself in an adversarial role in opposition to the Savior's ultimate saving mission. So it's important to know that as well. Um, also, we got this really good quote from the New Testament manual. It says, Peter probably meant well when he objected to the teaching that Jesus Christ would have to suffer and be killed. However, if Jesus had accommodated Peter's wishes by avoiding the suffering of the atonement, there would have been no redemption from sins and no resurrection conquering death. All mankind would unavoidably have perished, and God's work of bringing past the immortality and eternal life of man would not have been fulfilled. All this would have served the destructive aims of Satan, and in that moment of his impulsive protest, Peter unwittingly sided with the adversary. So to me, this kind of makes me think like, are there moments where I get so excited about something, you know, maybe it's church or whatever, something at church, I get so excited about it that I actually go and I kind of add side with the adversary. And I think this would be the times where maybe I get so bogged down in like the cute stuff on Pinterest and I think, okay, the primary program has to be exactly perfect. It has to be exactly like this program on Pinterest because it's so precious. And I lose sight of the fact that, no, the primary program is about helping the kids build their testimonies, right? So when you kind of overshoot the mark, I think is like hubris is kind of what we're, we're looking at here. When we overshoot the mark, I think sometimes then we fall into the side of the adversary is what Peter kind of did. So that was interesting stuff. All right, and 24. We get into where Jesus is talking to disciples about he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Um, and I think this is interesting because this is one of the big scriptures that I feel like Christianity in general uses a lot, where it says, And then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so we use this a lot with imagery of the cross. And I hadn't really ever thought about it until I started studying today with the New Testament Seminary Manual. And they pointed out that Christ hadn't been crucified yet. But yet he's still using the imagery of the cross. And so why would that have been a big deal? So the seminary manual says, even before the Savior's crucifixion, the image of taking up one's cross would have been familiar and perhaps troubling to the disciples. Crucifixion was a common means of execution in the Roman Empire, and its victims were made to carry their own crossbeams to the place of execution. By using this imagery, the Savior vividly taught his disciples what they must be ready for and called upon them to follow his example by submitting to the will of the Father in their lives. The way that they do that, 
we look at the Joseph Smith translation, it's down there in the little footnotes, and it says, And now for man to take up his cross is to deny himself of all ungodliness and every worldly lust and keep my commandments. And so that's his charge to us, right? To deny ourselves of all ungodliness worldly lust and to keep his commandments. That's really what we need to do as well. And so that's why he uses the imagery of the cross, which is also so perfect because it's kind of getting the disciples breaking in the idea of, hey guys, you know, this cross is kind of important. Like it's going to come back a little bit later. Like pay attention here, guys. And he talks about whosoever shall save his life shall lose it. Who will lose his life for my sake shall find it. And I think it's important for the apostles to know this because a lot of them will lose their lives for Jesus Christ. Um, they're going to be martyred, many of them. And so this is the lifestyle that they are choosing and they're going all in on it. And that is an amazing thing and awe-inspiring thing, I think, and um, a great testimony to me of the faith of these men. So those are my thoughts on Matthew 16. Okay, so we are going to jump right on into Come Follow Me this week. Um, we talked a lot in Matthew 16 about the events of Matthew 16, but once we get into the Mount of Transfiguration, those events, that kind of thing, we're going to see a lot of it covered in Come Follow Me, so I want to go ahead and jump right into Come Follow Me. And of course, the first section of Come Follow Me, A Testimony of Jesus Christ Comes by Revelation, we like just talked about. So we're going to skip that section and go straight on to what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Okay, and this covers Matthew 17, 1 through 9, Mark 9, 2 through 10, and Luke 9, 28 through 36. And it says, When Jesus took Peter, James, and John to a high mountain, he was transfigured or glorified before them. Moses and Elijah, in parentheses, Elijah, also appeared and bestowed the priesthood keys on the apostle. These keys enabled them to lead Christ's church on the earth after his resurrection. And it's really important to know that because if we know that those were the keys that the original church had, we also know that they were restored in the latter days. And so our authority comes directly from Jesus Christ and from the original church. And so that's why it's so important to understand about the keys of the kingdom and the keys of heaven and how this all happened. Now, Come Follow Me also recommends that you go to the Bible dictionary and look up transfiguration, comma, mount of, which is so funny. I'm like, why did they not just put it under mount of transfiguration? Why is it transfiguration, comma, mount of? I don't even know. Okay. That is neither here nor there, so we are going to go ahead and just jump right in. So, this is interesting to me. You go into the Bible dictionary, into Transfiguration, Mount of, and it talks about this happens about a week after the events in Matthew 16, 19, where, you know, Peter's promised that he would get the keys to the kingdom, and on the mount, it says that the Transfiguration occurred in about October, which I'm like, I had no idea that it was in October, but yes. So this whole transfiguration thing is happening in October. And this is about six months before the death of Christ. So Christ knows that the end is coming, or I guess the, you know, the transition, because it's not the end for him at all. And um, the transition is coming. And Jesus is dropping hints about this, like left and right and left and right. Like, guys, okay, the Son of Man's going to be killed, but he's going to rise after three days. And they were very sorry. I mean, it's all over the scriptures. I just don't think it has sunk into them kind of what is going to happen. And I think that this Mount of Transfiguration is another clue because Christ is literally transfigured before him. They saw the Lord in a glorified and transfigured state. And so I would hope that after Christ dies in about six months, they will remember this and remember him in his glorified and transfigured state and be like, okay, so he's coming back and he's going to look like he did on the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't think it happened that way, but <laughs> yes, it, it's there. All right, so there are two other people besides Christ and the apostles there. Um, there's Moses and Elijah. And Moses and Elijah, I think it's important that they were there, first of all, to restore the priesthood keys. And we know that they also came back and restored the priesthood keys in the modern day. But I think this is also really symbolic for the apostles as well, Peter, James, and John, because you have the law of Moses, and that's what the Jews have been living, you know, for centuries up until this point, right? But you hear, you know, Christ talks all the time about the law and the prophets. And so again, they had the law of Moses, but then they also had the teachings of the prophets, which was kind of like this oral tradition that they kind of mashed onto the law of Moses. So there was like the Torah law of Moses and then this law and prophets that was mashed into it. Okay. So you got these two different things going on. And so Moses is, you know, very symbolic of the law of Moses, which, you know, his name's in there. So yeah, duh. okay. But then you have Elijah 
And Elijah was like the superstar prophet of the Jews. Like they loved them some Elijah, okay? And so Elijah then represented the prophets. So here on the Mount of Transfiguration, you have the law and the prophets who are literally handing over the keys of the church and the kingdom to the apostles who are going to start this brand new church and they're going to be able to take the gospel of Christ everywhere and they have the keys to do it and it's given to them by two figures who are representing, you know, the law of Moses and the, the law of the prophets. Um, I also think that this is really cool because I think sometimes maybe we might think or people who are investigating the church might think like, oh, that's so weird. Like you have these old prophets like just showing up to confer keys on people and stuff like that. But no, there's precedent here in the New Testament for that happening. Like that very thing happens. And so all the old prophets and John the Baptist and stuff showing up in the latter days to establish the keys of the kingdom here in the latter days. Yeah, this is precedent for that. So I think it's important to see the pattern between the two. Okay, back to Bible Dictionary, Transfiguration, comma, Mount Up. Okay, it says that the event is important in many ways. First of all, it was necessary that the priesthood authority was conferred upon Peter, James, and John. The significance of the Savior's work was emphasized, and the unity of various dispensations and the close relationship of Jesus and his prophets was demonstrated. Okay, so we talked about that. Um, Priest authority is conferred. The significance of the Savior's work was emphasized. Like, this is really the transition, guys. And then you have the unity of the various dispensations, the law and the prophets, and Christ coming together. Okay, so a similar event it talks about occurred on April 3rd, 1836 in the temple at Kirtland, Ohio, where the same heavenly messengers conferred the priesthood keys upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. And that's our example of it in the latter days as well. Okay, so that's the Mount of Transfiguration. We go back into Come, Follow Me, and it starts talking a little bit more specifically about the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And that's from Matthew 16, 13 through 19, 17, 1 through 9. So the keys of the kingdom of heaven that the Savior promised to Peter are the priesthood keys. And priesthood keys are the authority God has given to priesthood leaders to direct, control, and govern the use of his priesthood here on earth. The exercise of priesthood authority is governed by those who hold its keys, and those who hold the priesthood keys have the right to preside over and direct the church within a jurisdiction. Okay, so if we think who is the person that has all the priesthood keys, who has the jurisdiction for the entire church, well, right now we know it's our prophet Russell M. Nelson, right? And so the week that I'm recording this, just a few days ago, there was the dedication of the Rome, Italy temple, which if you guys haven't seen the pictures of, it is just gorgeous. Like, it's absolutely beautiful. And it's so cool to see this temple built in a place where, you know, Peter and Paul and, you know, several of the other apostles and disciples of Christ walked, you know. And so now this temple is being built there and just the full circle that the gospel has come is amazing. But because of that, in the visitor center of the temple, there are all, all these beautiful statues of the apostles. And the one of Peter specifically has him holding some keys. And, you know, of course, they're the keys to the kingdom. And so there's a picture that they took after the dedication, and it's of President Nelson with the statue of Peter, and together they're holding the keys of the church. And I love that image because it just shows the Latter-day Church and the ancient church kind of coming together and the keys that unite them. Because the keys are the authority of God, and that's what unites the two churches together. And we are the restored church on the earth today. So I really love that. So it asks, you know, again, we talk a little bit about the priesthood. And priesthood, I know, has been a hot topic in the church lately, especially, you know, women and the priesthood. But guys, there is an awesome, like, awesome, 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 I cannot underline that statement enough, article in the Ensign, in the March Ensign this month, about women and the priesthood. It's called Connecting Daughters of God with His Priesthood Power. Okay, and so it talks about the relationship that women have with the priesthood. And so I'm not going over this to make any of the men out there feel bad or feel lessened because you guys definitely have the priesthood. But I think it is really important for our sisters to understand where they stand in a relationship with the priesthood. And um, I think a lot of times we think maybe we're not as good or as important to the Lord because we don't have the priesthood. But this article just like knocks away all kinds of stuff and gives me a lot of hope too. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you some of the quotes from the article about women in the priesthood. And the first quote I want to share with you is from Bonnie L. Oscarson. Okay, she's the former young woman general president. She declares, all women need to see themselves as essential participants in the work of the priesthood. Women in this church are presidents, 
counselors, teachers, members of councils, sisters, and mothers, and the kingdom of God cannot function unless we rise up and fulfill our duties with faith. Okay, so the priesthood cannot function unless women of the church rise up and fulfill their duties with faith. And, you know, one of the things that I guess the proponents of, you know, the people out there screaming about giving women the priesthood, um, they talk about, you know, we need to be able to be equal with the men and everything. And I'm like, guys, we are. Like, we teach and we preach in our sacrament meetings. And um, there's actually a church congregation or denomination, I guess you could say, um, here in the South that's really big. They believe in taking the Bible literally. And there's a scripture there in the Bible that talks about women being silent in church meetings. And so women are literally not allowed to preach. They're not allowed to teach classes. They're not allowed to say prayers in meetings. I mean, any time that they have these big meetings and stuff like that, it's all run by men. Um, in fact, the only time women are allowed to teach or really hold any sort of like teaching calling, I guess you would have, is with the really young kids in Sunday school. Okay, once the kids even get to teenagers, the teachers all become men. Um, and that's, it's like a big denomination here in the South, y'all. Like, it's not even like a, a small thing. And so, you know, when these women are up there screaming about like having equal priesthood rights with the men, I'm just like looking at them like, y'all, you don't even know how good we have it. Like, come on. Like, so like compared to some of the other churches I see here in the South, like we actually have it like really good. And honestly, I will also tell you this too, because my dad served in bishoprics all while I was growing up and he was the bishop when I was a teenager, I would never want that amount of responsibility. Like even as primary president, I'm like, we already have too many meetings. Like I, I don't want any more meetings. I don't want any more responsibility. Don't give that to me. I'm like, if the men want to take that and handle that, then yes, let the men have that. Like, ugh, don't give me any more. I don't need anything else. All right. But going on with callings and things like that, President Down H. Oaks has a really good quote about this. And he says, we are not accustomed to speaking of women having the authority of the priesthood in their church callings. But what other authority could it be? When a woman, young or old, is set apart to preach the gospel as a full-time missionary, she is given the priesthood authority to perform a priesthood function. This is down a joke saying this, guys. Okay, So full-time missionary sisters are given the priesthood to perform a priesthood function. Okay, the same is true when a woman is set apart to function as an officer or teacher in a church organization under the direction of one who holds the keys of the priesthood. So, guys, when we are operating in the church in our callings, that is literally the power of the priesthood. Okay, President Ballard even clarified further the endowment from the temple is literally a gift of power. All who enter the house of the Lord officiate in the ordinances of the priesthood. This applies to men and women alike. All worthy members, President Ballard is saying this, guys, all worthy members who have received their endowment and keep the covenants they have made in the temple have priesthood power. Thus, women, married or single, can have priesthood power in their homes, regardless of a visit from a priesthood holder. I'm getting kind of teary-eyed, guys, because I, for the longest time, you know, I sit there in sacrament meeting and I listen to testimonies of women who are like, I'm so grateful to have the priesthood in my home. And, you know, I, it kind of stabs me in the heart a little bit because I don't have the priesthood in my home, you know, as I thought. Um, it's something that I always wanted even as a little girl. And, you know, I thought getting married in the temple, yeah, I would have it and everything. And so it's something that I've missed, I thought, in the last couple of years. However, this quote gives me so much hope because I have the priesthood in my home because of the endowment and the blessings of the temple. And how amazing is that? That even without my husband worthily carrying the priesthood, the priesthood is still in my home when I keep my covenants to my Heavenly Father. And I have that power given to me through the temple. That is a huge blessing of the temple. So, sisters, please live up to every promise that you've made in the temple and keep your covenants because that is such a blessing to know that no matter if you have a man in your home or not, if you have a worthy male in your home or not, you have the priesthood in your home. What a blessing that is. Phew. Okay, I had to take a moment there and stop and kind of take some deep breaths because <laughs> that got really emotional. But I'm good, guys. Um, I have to tell you, I will probably get emotional with this next part as well because the spirit was so strong when I was going through some of the materials. So 
I apologize in advance. All right, so next section that we have here is Matthew 17, 14 through 21, Mark 9, 14 through 29. When seeking greater faith, I must hold on to the faith I already have. Um, and it says the father mentioned in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 had reasons to doubt that Jesus could heal his son. He had asked Jesus' disciples to heal his son, and they could not. But when the Savior invited him to exercise faith, he did not focus on his doubts. Lord, I believe, he said, and then in acknowledgement that his faith was not perfect, he added, Help thou my unbelief. What did the Spirit teach you as you read about this miracle? How has Heavenly Father increased your faith? And what can you do to build upon the faith you already have? And it says, perhaps you could compile a list of scriptures, conference messages, or experience that have strengthened your faith. And one of the talks it recommends that you go seek out is Jeffrey R. Holland's Lord, I believe. Which, first of all, let me just say, I love Jeffrey R. Holland. Like, I know we're not supposed to have favorites in the apostles, but Jeffrey R. Holland definitely has a special place in my heart. Like, every time he gets up to speak in conference, I'm like, oh, he gets me. Like, we are on the same wavelength. Like, Jeffrey R. Holland and I, we think the same way. I just, I really love Jeffrey R. Holland. So, this Lord, I believe, this talk, gorgeous. Like, absolutely gorgeous. I would definitely recommend that you go and seek it out. Some of the quotes that I want to share with you from it is here in Lord, I Believe. With no other hope remaining... This father asserts what faith he has and pleads with the Savior of the world, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jeffrey R. Holland says, I can hardly read those words without weeping. The plural pronoun us is obviously used intentionally. This man is saying, in effect, our whole family is pleading. Our struggle never ceases. We are exhausted. Our son falls into the water, he falls into the fire, he is continually in danger, and we are continually afraid. We don't know where else to turn. Can you help us? We will be grateful for anything, a partial blessing, a glimmer of hope, some small lifting of the burden carried by this boy's mother and I every day of our life. How beautiful is that? Think about all the things that you're carrying in your life, okay? Basically, we're saying to our Heavenly Father and Jesus, our whole family is pleading, or my whole soul is pleading. My struggle never ceases. I am exhausted. You know, spiritually, I'm in danger. I'm continually afraid. I don't know where else to turn. Can you help me? I'll be grateful for anything, a partial blessing, a glimmer of hope, some small lifting of the burden carried every day. That's what this man, this father holding his little baby boy was asking. And that's what he came to the Savior with. And he says, you know, Lord, I believe. Man recognizing that his belief wasn't perfect, he says, Lord, help thou my unbelief. Um, he says, if thou canst do anything, was spoken by the Father. And Jesus comes back to him, if thou canst believe, was spoken by the Master. And so, what a powerful promise. If you can do anything, and Jesus is like, yeah, I can do anything, can you believe? That's what it takes. And again, this may not in our lives, that burden that we're carrying or whatever may not go away immediately. It may be something that we have to carry, but if we have that belief and that faith, that will help us carry it. It'll strengthen our backs to be able to carry it, right? Jeffrey R. Holland has some observations on this story. And the first one, observation number one regarding this account, is that when facing the challenge of faith, the father asserts his strength first. And only then will he acknowledge his limitation. His initial declaration is affirmative and without hesitation. Lord, I believe. I would say to all who wish for more faith, remember this man. In moments of fear or doubt or troubling times, hold the ground that you have already won, even if that ground is limited. When those moments come and issues surface, the resolution of which is not immediately forthcoming... Hold fast to what you already know and stand strong until additional knowledge comes. It was of this very incident, this specific miracle, that Jesus says, If you have faith as a grain of a mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible to you. The size of your faith or the degree of your knowledge is not the issue. It is the integrity you demonstrate towards the faith you have and the truth you already know. And so I love this. When we are coming to a challenge, 
the first thing that Jeffrey R. Holland is telling us that this story teaches us is to kind of take account of our strengths. What are the strengths that I'm bringing to this? Okay, the strengths are that I believe in my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that I know I can continue to strengthen that faith as I study the scriptures and work through Come Follow Me and pray every day and go to the temple. I can strengthen that faith. And so those are some of the strengths that I have. What can I then now add to it to help me get through this trial? Um, and one of the things, this is me kind of going off on a side here real quick. Um, one of the things, the questions that has been most helpful to me over the years in therapy is what will it take to survive this? Whatever this is that you are looking at or you are staring at. The first, there's two questions actually that are really helpful, but the first one is what will it take to survive this? Let's make out a plan. What do you need to do in your life to get through whatever trial it is that you are going through? And so I think that's kind of what we're looking at here. When Jeffrey R. Holland is talking about this, he's saying, okay, go ahead and look at your trial. Let's take stock of what it is that you need to put together and what, what are the strengths that you have to outlast this and what do you need to do to survive. And not only to survive, but to thrive, to have your testimony grow as you are walking through this valley that you are staring down. And then the second question in therapy that has always been very helpful to me is when you have gone through this trial, whatever it is, and you get to the other side and you believe you are successful in defeating this trial, what does that success look like? You know, so when I'm coming to a trial of faith and I'm taking stock of what I already have testimonies of and, you know, things that do strengthen my faith and I go through this trial of faith, what will it look like when I get to the other side? You know, Christ help me with my unbelief, but what will that look like when he helps me with my unbelief? How will I come out on the other side? And so I think that is kind of what's going on here. And um, I just want to share those two questions with you because I find that those are very helpful questions whenever I am facing something to stop and think about, number one, what do I need to survive this? And number two, what will success in this trial look like? So keep that in mind, y'all. All right, back to Jeffrey R. Holland. The second observation is a variation of the first. When problems come and questions arise, do not start your quest for faith by saying how much you do not have, leading as it is with your unbelief. Be as candid about your questions as you need to be, because life is full of them on one subject or another. But if you and your family want to be healed, don't let those questions stand in the way of faith working its miracle. And this was really important to me because I see a lot of times um, when I start questioning things like, obviously my, I feel like my big trial right now is getting my husband to come back to the church. And so I question like, okay, Heavenly Father, like he, I just know it's his personality. I just know kind of what he's got going on. He's fighting this so hard. Like, Heavenly Father, how can you make this work? Like really how, how could this possibly happen? And when I start questioning like that, it doesn't strengthen me. It starts causing doubt. It starts causing weakness. Whereas when I go and I look at the examples in the scriptures, or I look at examples around me that I see at church, or, you know, of people who have come back who are strengthened, I start taking, you know, inventory of my strengths. What do I have that will help get me through this trial? Um, you know, I can have the spirit with me. That can be huge strength. I am, I feel like I'm a fairly good teacher and a fairly good producer of truth. And so I can do that in my home. And that's some of the strengths that I can bring to this. So if I focus on that, I focus on my faith, I focus on having the spirit in my home and I don't start keep focusing on the questions of how's this going to happen and when is it going to happen? Don't focus on those. Those are my limitations that I don't need to focus on because they take away my attention from the things that can really strengthen me and help in the situation, right? Jeffrey R. Holland again, brothers and sisters, this is a divine work in progress with the manifestations and blessings of it abounding in every direction. And I love this next part. It's typical Jeffrey R. Holland humor, which is another reason I love him, but he says, please don't hyperventilate. If from time to time issues arrive, need to be examined, understood, and resolved. So no hyperventilating, guys. We're not going to freak out, okay? Jeffrey R. Holland says, they do and they will. In this church, what we know will always trump what we do not know. And remember, in this world, everyone is walking by faith. Last observation from Jeffrey R. Holland. When doubt or difficulty come, do not be afraid to ask for help. If we want it as humbly and honestly as this father did, we can get it. The scriptures phrase such earnest desire as being of real intent, pursued with full purpose of heart, acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God. I testify that in response to that kind of importuning, God will send help from both sides of the veil to strengthen our belief. How awesome is that promise? That's amazing. Um, and it's 
I like the promise too because it's not saying I promise that your problem will be solved. I promise that, you know, everything will be roses and daisies, but it's saying that you're going to get help to help strengthen your belief to get you through, to help you survive whatever trial it is that you are walking through. Um, this actually reminds me of a story one of my friends told me where um, she had a son who had a really serious illness and she started noticing that she was having some problems with depression. And so she was praying like day after day, she'd pray every night, Heavenly Father, you know, please help me not to be depressed or Heavenly Father, please help me know how to help my depression. And um, she kept praying and praying and day by day people would tell her oh you need to go see someone you need to go get some help and you know therapy or medication and she's like no 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 I'm, I'm just gonna keep praying and so she kept praying and eventually she's like you know what I think that my answer to this prayer of what I need to do to help treat my depression is the answers I'm getting from people around me who are you know people who love me and people who know me who are suggesting that I go seek help from professionals and so she went and she did that and found you know her whole world turned upside down in a really good way because she saw that help coming again from both sides of the veil you know I talked about this a lot with mental illness Heavenly Father is not going to come and show up with the perfect antidepressant for you um, that's just not how it works but he can guide doctors and he can guide professionals to help you find the help that you need, whether it be a physical ailment that you are struggling with, a mental health issue you're struggling with. Um, he can provide, the, you know, the bishopric members, the priesthood that you need if you're struggling with a spiritual issue. Whatever it is that you are going through, the help from both sides of the veil becomes very helpful. Okay, so let's go on down to the section of Come Follow Me called Ideas for Family Scripture Study and Family Home Evening. Um, it talks about Gary E. Stevenson's story, this first little section here, about getting locked out of his car. And there's a really cute video about that that I recommend you go look at because it could be really fun to with your kids this week, you know, using different keys to open locks and talking about how those keys open different locks and the keys of the priesthood open different locks. I mean, that could all be really good things. I want to talk about the section, though, the next section, that's Matthew 17. 20. And it says, Prophets with faith in Jesus Christ have moved mountains. It gives the example of Jacob 4 6 and Moses 7 13. The following testimony from Bishop Richard C. Edgeley can help make this verse relevant to your family. I have never witnessed the removal of an actual mountain, but because of faith, I have seen a mountain of doubt and despair removed and replaced with hope and optimism. Because of faith, I have personally witnessed a mountain of sin replaced with repentance and forgiveness. And because of faith, I have personally witnessed a mountain of pain replaced with peace and hope and gratitude. Yes, I have seen mountains moved. What are some mountains in our lives that need to be moved, and how can we show faith in God's power to help us remove those mountains? And so I was trying to think of something in my life, sometime in my life where I feel like I had been staring down a mountain. And so... This is like years ago, guys. It was when I graduated from high school. So it was in 2000. So yeah, that tells you a little bit about how old I am. Going through high school and even middle school, like my whole academic career, I really, really struggled. Um, my grades were really bad. Uh, I would say I was probably a C student. But the problem with that was, is that I could fake it enough on the tests that I kept being put in advanced classes because I test like really well. Like I am an amazing tester. And so I would keep getting everything right on these tests, but then I would never remember to do my homework. And if I did my homework, I would lose it. And I would try and study at home and I would forget the stuff that I was trying to study. And I was just scattered. I was like one of those kids who just like forget stuff everywhere they go. And I could never stay focused on any everything. And um, finally, my senior year, someone suggested like, hey, have you ever had her tested for ADD? And my mom was like, no, we've never had her tested for ADD. The, the kids with ADD are the ones who are like, you know, making laps around the room, right? They're the ones who can never hold still. And she can hold still. Like, like I could hold still. I could literally sit on my own and stare at the wall for hours and just live in my head, like my crazy imagination. Um, very creative. Just, I was happy with my own little thoughts and just living in my own little world. And so they're like, oh, I think you need to probably go have her tested for ADD. Because that's what would happen is I'd be in the middle of science class and I'd decide, mm, this is boring. I'm going to think about whatever book I'm reading. Or, you know, in math, I literally, guys, times would take out whatever book it was I was reading and sit there and read my book in math class. And I got in trouble for that multiple times. But basically, you know, I just would wasn't able to focus very well. And so after they did the test for ADD, they decided, yeah, you know what? She's got some pretty significant ADD symptoms. Let's start her on some medication. And so I started medication. And yeah, it, it was like putting on glasses. If you've ever needed glasses, um, 
my thoughts that before had been fuzzy and kind of unclear all of a sudden like sharpened and intensified and I was able to think in a straight line, if that makes sense. Um, I had never thought in the same way that I did once that medication was in my brain. And it was amazing. And I was on medication for, I would say, probably about five to six years. And I've actually gone off of it. And I feel like just my time with that medication for just that short time, those, those few years, kind of help my retrain my brain how to think and I'm much more focused I'm much you know more on top of things now people actually really have a hard time believing me when I tell them like no you don't understand I graduated high school with a 2.7 GPA but at the same time I also made a 33 on the ACT so you know how do you reconcile those two and so when it was time to apply for college you know I was applying to all these different colleges not all these different I had two maybe one here in the south and then just on a whim I sent my application letter off to BYU. And at the time, because I knew my grade point average was so bad, I had no hope of actually getting into BYU. Like that was my mountain. I'm looking at it. I'm like, okay, so BYU, I guess is my number one school, but then I need to have a backup here in the South that will take people who are flunkies because my GPA is just not good enough to get into BYU. Like it's just not going to happen. I wrote my application essay on, you know, the ADD situation and what had happened with all of that and um, sent my application off. And of course, the thing about BYU back in the day, and I don't know if it still happens, but they send out their acceptance letters like way later than all the colleges here in the South. So I had already gotten an acceptance letter from the college that I had applied to here in the South. And so I just assumed like, hey, that's where I'm going to go. This mountain's not going to move. So I'm just going to try and find my way around it. And so I had accepted the acceptance letter from the college here in the South. And I had even already had a roommate. I mean, I was getting ready to go and I get this feeling that I need to fast for an acceptance letter from BYU. And I was like, Heavenly Father, you know, again, I'm questioning doubting before I start thinking about, you know, my strengths. And I'm like, Heavenly Father, I don't think that this is possible. I don't think it's possible to move this mountain, you know, help my unbelief. And so I fasted that Sunday and I'm sitting in the chapel, you know, just sitting there fasting, thinking about this and thinking about like, I've already got this other college ready to go. I should just go to that Heavenly Father. BYU is just not going to happen. It's just too hard. Um, I'm not going to get in. I'm not good enough. And I get this impression in my mind. It was like, check the mail tomorrow. I'm like, check the mail tomorrow. Like, really? Like, that's very, very specific. And so I go home, and the next day, I come home from school, and I'm like, you know, just nonchalantly like, hey, Mom, have you seen the mail? And she starts smiling. She's like, yes, I did. And she's holding up a little envelope for BYU. And I'm like, okay. And so I look at the envelope, and it's skinny. And I'm like, oh, rejection letters always come in skinny envelopes. I'm like, this, this is it. And so I open it up. And it was an acceptance letter to BYU. And I'm like, what? This is crazy. Um, I got accepted to BYU with a 2.7 GPA. Someone told me once, and I don't know if this is true or not. It's probably urban legend, but that they pray over every application. The application's office there at BYU. Um, So I think maybe that's what happened is that someone felt impressed by the spirit to move this mountain out of my way. And I did. I went on to BYU. I graduated with a great GPA. It was like three point something. I don't remember what, but um, once we got that medication fixed, I was good. I went on to go get my master's. I have a 4.0 in my master's degree. I mean, I could do it. And I just needed that mountain to be moved out of my way so I could go and do it. That was a huge experience to me of putting faith in my father in heaven and not doubting. You know, the world would tell you that you cannot get into BYU with a 2.7. And y'all, I'm not saying that you can get into BYU with a 2.7, okay? I'm just saying that where the Lord wants you, you will be. If the Lord wants you at BYU with a 2.7, you will get there, okay? Um, I think maybe that ACT score kind of helped me out a little bit. But it was still, it was a mountain that was huge and it was in my way and I didn't think it was possible and the Lord moved it because of that fasting, that faith that I was like, okay, you know, Heavenly Father, we're going to see, we're going to see what happens. I'll fast. Yes, sir. You know, I'll do that. And so I see that time and time again, that when I put my faith in my Heavenly Father, things don't always tend to work out the way I think they should, but they work out the way that they should and things just kind of fall into place. Okay, so I think that is a wrap on this week's lesson. It was an awesome lesson. I loved it. I love learning more about the priesthood power and the keys to kingdom. And it's really helped strengthen my testimony, really, of the authority of the priesthood here in the latter days. Um, 
I just really love having that example in the New Testament of the priesthood keys being given to Peter and James and John, and then, you know, seeing it mirrored in our latter days. That really strengthened my testimony of that. So I was really glad for that. Um, I also really loved reading about women in the priesthood and finding that strength and reassurance from those words from our prophets and apostles. And it's just overall was just a really wonderful lesson this week. So I definitely invite you to check it out and don't just bypass the stuff that it suggests, the scriptures and, you know, the Bible dictionary, transfiguration, comma, mount of, and the various general conference talks. Definitely check those out because there's really good worthwhile stuff in all of those. So yes great lesson this week. Thanks for listening, guys. You guys are awesome as always. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and are not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin MacLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved.